If you would, please take a copy of God's Word and turn to Isaiah chapter 34. Isaiah chapter 34. We'll read the whole chapter. Just a reminder, if you don't have a Bible with you, we do print the Scripture text on the uh, f- front two pages. Flip, flip the first page, boom, you'll find it. That's, that's what I'm trying to say. My job can be a series of awkward conversations. Some of you have heard me say that before. No, I'm not complaining, just stating a fact. When you have to tell people every week, I'm a sinner, so are you. Your only hope is to admit your helplessness and find refuge in Jesus. Well, at least half of those things can be a little awkward. So, but the thing is, sometimes awkward is good. With that, let's look at God's word which is always good. Isaiah 34. Hear now the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Draw near, O nations, to hear, and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear, and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations, and furious against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction. He has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction." The Lord has a sword, it is sated with blood, it is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen shall fall with them, and young steers with the mighty bulls. Their land shall drink its fill of blood, and their soil shall be gorged with fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion, And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched, its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. But the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness. Its nobles... There is no one there to call it a kingdom, and all its princes shall be nothing. Thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its fortresses. It shall be the haunt of jackals and abode for ostriches. And wild animals shall meet with hyenas. The wild goat shall cry to his fellow. Indeed, there the night bird settles and finds for herself a resting place. There the owl nests and lays and hatches and gathers her young in her shadow. Indeed, there the hawks are gathered, each one with her mate. Seek and read from the book of the Lord. Not one of these shall be missing. None shall be without her mate. For the mouth of the Lord is commanded, and his spirit has gathered them. He has cast the lot for them. His hand has portioned it out to them with the line. They shall possess it forever. From generation to generation, they shall dwell in it. Thus ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. Let's ask him to bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. 
Our Heavenly Father, we come before you as those who know, at least we should know, that we are those deserving of your judgment. And so, Father, would you help us to see our sin in this hour, but also see our great Savior, your Son, the one who loved us and gave himself for sinners like us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Judgment is not a comfortable subject. Might be the understatement of the year. That's also how Barry Webb opens his commentary on Isaiah 34. Judgment is not a comfortable subject. He also says that judgment is necessary for God and and that God is good to warn us of judgment. Think of what Francis Schaeffer wrote years ago, the title of one of his books. He is there and he is not silent. He has not left us in the dark about who we are, about why we're here. We are his children, created by him in his image for his own glory, that we might glorify him in his magnificent grace all the days of our lives. Ecclesiastes 7.29 says, God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. And now God seeks us. He longs to be gracious to us, Isaiah says, to rescue us out of our schemes, out of our sins. And one way he does that is by warning us. No, judgment is not comfortable. But God is faithful and kind to speak clearly to us so that we might find refuge in him. And in his faithfulness, he warns us, he avenges, he creates, he waits. We see all that In the passage before us today, first point is this, God warns. God warns in verses 1 through 4. Look with me at verse 1. It says, Draw near, O nations, to hear, and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. We can't plead ignorance before this God. He warns us. In the warning here, it's, it's apocalyptic. It's, a, it's end of the world as we know it's stuff, isn't it? Verse 2, For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. All nations. Now it's true that God chose one nation in Old Testament times to display His love and favor upon them, but even then... Not all of Israel, his chosen people, were truly Israel. And the whole point of choosing one nation was so that they would be a light to the nations. And being a light to the nations, it means shining a light on sin, shining a light on the penalty, the wages of sin, which is death. We must understand the stakes. We must understand the gravity of this life. And this is fueled missionary works in every age. John Piper famously wrote, missions exist because worship doesn't. The reason we send missionaries around the world is because there are still people out there, as well as right here, as well as across the street. There are still people out there that do not worship the triune God of the Bible. They worship something, whether it's an idol or an iPhone, whether it's a carved image or their career. But they don't worship the one we were all meant to worship. The one who is worthy of worship. The one who is larger than life, greater than self, lasting forever. No, judgment is not a comfortable subject, but it's a necessary subject. 
As Barry Webb continues, judgment is the natural corollary of the fact that God is king. As we see in chapter 33, a king must rule or he is no king at all. And that means that rebellion must finally be put down. You know, for years, it was almost passe to talk about this. Not popular, but not quite as sure anymore. I think we're growing more comfortable with the idea of judgment. And I don't mean just Christians. I mean non-Christians too. I mean society in general seems angry. Angry about something. And I think that's been going on longer than just two years. And you see, when you're angry, you tend to want judgment. You tend to want other people to be punished, regardless of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, the description of life in the kingdom of God. It's what I seem like I see more of, a desire for judgment. Without, we might add, the offer, the offer of forgiveness that Jesus extends countless times in Scripture. Even non-Christians have talked about this, that we live in a culture that wants to judge, that wants to punish, but it doesn't want to forgive. But you know, judgment is not all you see there. See here in this passage. Because there is a sense of warning throughout all of this. It's, it's not just, it's not saying this is here. It's not saying you've blown your chance. There's a sense where it is saying this is what is to come. What will take place in the future. And even if it's scary and worldwide, this is a good thing that we are warned ahead of time. Verses 3 and 4 say, Their slain shall be cast out. The stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the host of heaven shall rot away. And the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. It's a warning. If someone says God has put the world on notice, he will not tolerate insurrection forever. Same author says God's wrath is expressed every day in a thousand ways, referring to Romans 1, 18 and following. Every morning's newspaper provides more tragic evidence of the terrible price that the world is even now paying for its rejection of God, but that is nothing compared to what is to come. It is like the tremors that precede an earthquake. How should we respond to all that? By trembling? Nothing else? Shouldn't we also ask, what is God doing by telling us this? What is He doing by telling us this? Isn't He telling us to flee the judgment that is to come? To join the remnant that will return and find refuge in Him? To repent, to turn from our sin and turn to our Savior. Isn't our jealous God calling us back to Himself in all this if we have ears to hear it, hear His voice? Isn't all this motivation to meditate upon the, the previous chapter so that we might ask Him to be our arm every morning, our salvation in time of trouble, so that we might take refuge in Him until the storm is past so that we might one day behold the king in his beauty. Derek Thomas says all of this is meant to lead God's people to greater holiness by God's grace. He says God loves his people, will never forsake them, but he will chastise them when they fall into sinful ways. 
also says those who remain unrepentant have no hope in passages like this. If you're unrepented and proud of it, if you're in rebellion against God and you're living your life out loud, you don't care what anyone thinks, including him, you've been warned. God is showing his kindness to you once again, and it's up to you how you'll respond to that, either in bitterness and anger or in humility and repentance, up to you. But I also want us to ask, what is unrepentance? Is not doing as good as you want unrepentance? (laughs) Or is that hating your sin? You see, most of us are beaten down right now, if we're honest. And some of us are so used to beating up on ourselves that we've forgotten how to hear some of these words. You see, if you hear this word, first of all, good. And if you hear it and realize that you deserve all that God has said and you've cried out to Him to save you, then you have heard, you have heeded that warning. And once you heed the warning, you need to hear something else. You need to hear that God will never forsake those who trusted in Him. His word to the unrepentant is very different than His word to the not perfectly repentant. You stumble into sin and hate every minute of it. If you still do that, congratulations, you're a normal Christian fighting against your sin. You're going to be doing that between now and whenever you see Jesus face to face. And until that time, he will be faithful to cleanse you and preserve you and make you more like Jesus along the way. And furthermore, if you think God has forgotten you, In your struggle, maybe it's your struggle against sin, maybe it's against those who were sinning against you. If you think he's forgotten you, you're wrong. And that's the next thing we see in this passage. After God warns, God avenges. God avenges his people. That's our second point in verses 5 through 9. God gets revenge on all of his and all of our enemies who are our enemies. They're those who hate us, who we are called to love, in the hope that they will repent. And why do I say that God is avenging on our behalf in this passage here, that he's taking revenge on our enemies? Look at verse 8. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. The cause of Zion. She has a cause. And God is committed to the cause of his Chosen people represented by Zion, a nickname for Jerusalem, the capital city of God's people back in the day, as well as the symbol of all that we long for, the new heavens and earth, the new Jerusalem, the new Zion. So God is committed to the cause of his people, and we should rejoice in that. We should take comfort in that. You also see all of this here. You don't just see that he's committed to the cause of Zion. You, you see him mention Edom, verses 5, 6, 9, as well as Basra, Edom's capital. We have shifted, you see, from all nations in verses 1 and 2 to one nation, Edom, in verses 5 following. But Edom is not just one nation. She's a representative nation. <clears throat> Edom are the descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother, or Israel's brother. But of course, there's been some sibling rivalry. Edom rejoiced in Psalm 137, verse 7, when Judah fell. 
And as Derek Kidner says, pointing to Hebrews 12, 16, Obadiah 10 through 14, he says, Edom symbolizes in Scripture the ungodly and the persecutor, the opposite and adversary of the church. All that together says those who have opposed God's people and never repent, they can expect judgment. Judgment from God himself with his own sword <clears throat> in verses 5 and 6. You might say there will be blood and lots of it. Edom's land will be burned. In fact, it says it will become desolate, inhabitable only by animals. You see all that starting in verses 9 through the end. And one commentator mentions how God was faithful to fulfill this word. Approximately 200 years after Isaiah wrote this, a group called the uh, Nabataean Arabs drove out the Edomites from their homeland. Why do we need to know that? One, we need to know that God is faithful to do what he said. Two, we need to know that God will defend the cause of his people. Often God's people are powerless to deliver themselves from the troubles they face. Maybe that's our fault, maybe it's not. Either way, the father of the fatherless is there for his people. He helps the helpless because he is not helpless. He is not powerless. Third, what if we are powerful? Financially, politically, physically. What if, what if we are in position to take our own vengeance, to punish someone physically, financially, socially, emotionally, for all the pain that they've inflicted upon us? You see, this morning I'm talking to a group that is, for the most part, fairly well-educated, fairly wealthy, dare I say fairly privileged. Yes, I said it, and it's not because we're mostly white. It's because most of us have all the things we need and most of the things we want. Now, I understand most of us ain't skiing in Aspen with the uber wealthy every weekend, but most of us can go skiing when we want. It's just one example. My point is some of us aren't as powerless as others. Some of us have certain amounts of power and influence by virtue of money, title, position, or something else. And the powerful also need to know that God avenges on behalf of his people. Because if you're powerful enough to get your own vengeance, then you need to check yourself before you wreck yourself. Vengeance is not your job. It's God's job. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And to be clear, I am not saying you should never exercise your legal right to this, that, whatever. I am saying that even if you have the right to do something as a citizen, you do not have the right as a Christian to harbor anger, bitterness, revenge in your heart. If we know God will avenge the wrongs that we suffer, then it allows us to rest in his salvation, to rest in whatever circumstances he's placed us in, to know that we are responsible to others, but not responsible for others. Our job is to live in a way that brings honor to the name of Christ, to pray for those who persecute us, trusting that God will defend our cause in his own time, in his own way. One more note in passing. I have to do it quickly just for the sake of time. One commentator says this. There is no direct correspondence, of course, between this, the 
Israel and Edom stuff going on here, and the tragic political and territorial conflicts in the Middle East today, Zion's cause in this passage is a quite different thing from modern Zionism. If you want to read how the Bible should influence our view of current events in the Middle East and the Old Testament connections to the church, I'd recommend a book by O. Palmer Robertson called The Israel of God. Palmer is uh, currently a professor at African Bible University. Some of you might recognize that name. We support several missionaries associated with them as well. But God avenges. That's what we see in this passage. God avenges. It should calm our fears and our anger. It should crystallize our comfort in Christ. And after God avenges, we also see thirdly that God creates. God creates. Yes, you see, if you're looking at the outline, he uncreates, he recreates. What is, what is all that there? Don't worry, I'll explain. In these verses, you see God's uncreation, we'll call it, which should remind us that he can, he has created, and he can also recreate. Indeed, he is making all things new. But that's not the happy note that this section, verses 9 through 17, starts on. Verse 9, Edom will become pitch in sulfur, even if you don't know exactly what that is. It doesn't sound good. Verse 10, night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever from generation to generation. It shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. No people passing through, consistent with what you read in the rest of these verses. Uninhabitable land. That led Alec Moitier to write this hot take. The blighted landscape shows again that the ultimate environmental threat is human sin, leaving in its wake a lasting pollution. There's other interesting notes in here. The uninhabited land, well, it's inhabited by animals, of course. And someone asked me in verses, uh, if verses 14 and the rest are making the same point as Matthew 6, that God provides a home even for the sparrows, small birds that are nearly worthless. He provides a home, a resting place, even to sparrows. Now that's true, but that may not be Isaiah's point here, not his main point. That seems to be that God is sovereign and he's faithful to judge the unrepentant. That faithfulness is seen in verse 16. Seek and read from the book of the Lord. Not one of these shall be missing. None shall be without her mate. For the mouth of the Lord has commanded. And his spirit has gathered them. If later generations had come, then they would have surely seen and read that God was faithful to do what he said. To wipe out Edom. Only the pairs of birds dwelled there. And what is God's destruction of Edom? But an act of uncreation, a reversal of creation. Why do I say that? There's various reasons, but one in particular. Verse 11, the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness. That word confusion, there's a little footnote there. If you look down on the bottom of my ESV, it says formlessness is another meaning for that word, another translation. God is making Edom, this representative of all of God's unrepentant enemies. He is making it formless and empty. You might say formless and void, if that sounds familiar. Genesis 1, 2, and 3. 
The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Verse 3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. God is reversing his act of creation in Edom. That is the picture of what his final judgment will be like. That should frighten us. Shouldn't surprise us. Because if God can create, then can't he also uncreate? I mean, after you've spoken creation into existence, it can't be that hard to uncreate things, can it? And you know, God doesn't even need to snap his fingers to wipe us out. No, all he has to do is say the word and it is so. God is faithful to uncreate those who never repent before their creator. But just to be clear, don't press this uncreation analogy too far. For those who bear God's wrath, does that mean that they simply cease to exist? Well, not according to the New Testament. It compares hell to Gehenna, a place of burning. In the story of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man says, Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. That passage and others have led scholars to conclude that hell is a place of conscious, eternal torment. It ain't fun. God is faithful to uncreate, in a manner of speaking, those who never repent before their creator. But God is also faithful to recreate those who trust in him. And you see that metaphor all over the Bible. Psalm 51 created me a clean heart. David says, after repenting of the sin of adultery and murder. Ezekiel 37, God makes the dry bones to live once again. Ezekiel 37, 13. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. Ephesians 2, it says we were dead in our sins and trespasses, but God made us alive together with Christ. He seated us in the heavenly places. John 3, verse 7, you must be born again. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old is gone. The new has come. The God who recreates, excuse me, the God who creates, he can uncreate but he can also recreate. He can and he is making all things new. And he can make you new if you turn to him, if you fall upon his mercy, if you recognize him as the Lord of your life. Yes, God avenges. God uncreates. That is true for those who do not repent. But I realize there might be some who hear that and it just reinforces to you that God is not fair. He's not good. He's not kind. He's, he's all wrath and judgment. He's like every bully that I've ever met. Maybe it reminds you of certain family members who confessed Christ but acted like a jerk. Understand this. The bullies of life, those who are truly hypocritical, who never repent, those are exactly the ones who are going to reckon with God one day. What about you? Can't you see that that is not all that God is? The might, the wrath, oh yes, they're real. But so is the mercy. The mercy that has been shown to countless sinners like us. 
Is it possible that his mercy tastes better than your bitterness? Whether it's bitterness at God, bitterness at your parents, bitterness at someone else, anything, is it helping you? Wouldn't you rather taste and see that God is good? The God who creates, who also recreates. Not only does God warn, does God avenge, does God create, he also waits. That's our fourth final point this morning. You see this in various scriptures in Isaiah and elsewhere. You see, friends, the bottom line, hard passage that we've read this morning, lots of judgment. This is still the same God we've been reading about. This is still the same God of Isaiah 30, 15. In returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. The same God of Isaiah 30, 18. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. He exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. The same God of Isaiah 33, verse 2. O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning. Our salvation in time of trouble. Verses 5 and 6, Isaiah 33, the Lord is exalted for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness and he will be the stability of your times. Abundance of salvation, wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. The same God, the same God who said this back in Genesis 2, verse 16, you may surely eat. Of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The same God who only subjected Adam and Eve to spiritual death, dead in their sins and transgressions, until God raised them to life, seated their souls in the heavenlies. The same God who could have zapped our first ancestors the minute they ate the fruit. The same God whose kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. The same God who waits, who is long-suffering with us. The God who waits and waits and waits longer than he has to so that we might come to our senses, so that we might see our sin and also see our great Savior. Barry Webb, I've said his name a lot this morning, he closes his commentary on this chapter by saying, in the last analysis, Isaiah's vision is a missionary vision. And every great missionary movement has derived its urgency from this truth. The world is in rebellion against God. And without the gospel, people will be lost utterly and eternally. Judgment is not a comfortable subject. But God announces judgment so that he might change the subject, so that he might direct us again and again back to his mercy, which alone can spare us from judgment. Let's pray. God, we've heard hard things this morning, but they're good things. They're true things. Truths about ourselves that we might not reckon with unless you've forced us to. Truths about ourselves that remind us how much we need you. And at the same time, they remind us how willing and ready you are to save, to show mercy, to restore us, to recreate us. 
Restore unto us, we pray, the joy of our salvation and renew a right spirit in us. Restore it if need be. Create it for the first time if need be. Oh God, be good to us. Show us your mercy. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in time of trouble. We ask it in Jesus' great name. Amen.